pray for prayer. Our God, we ask the psalmist's question, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. We would not have a knowledge of sin were it not for the word of God. With all of our heart, we do seek you. We ask that you would cause us by the power of your spirit to not wander from your commandments, that you would give us a voracious appetite for the truth of the Word of God, that we might study it, that we might understand it, that we might seek to obey it in hearts of worship and service. Your Word is what we've treasured in our heart that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, Lord. Teach us your statutes, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right before we get down to our exposition, our study of the Omni-Psalm, infinite yet intimate, let me give you two introductory comments. I wanted to do a sermon that undergirds the sanctity or the dignity of human life. Yes, given the biblical assault of the wicked murder in the form of abortion, but it extends far beyond abortion. It it includes euthanasia, capital punishment, conversations on war, forms of the like. It's too big of a subject to be exhausted on in one session of our study. Uh, I preach few topical sermons. I, I feel that the, that the best form of instructing God's people is consecutive verse-by-verse exposition where we take a book of the Bible, we start in the first verse and we march our way through to the last. So when we're seeking to find divine insight and the mind of Christ pertaining to issues of life, we would go to the clearest and the least ambiguous passages, unpacking authorial intent, whether it be John or the psalmist, and in its own historical grammatical context, what they have to say about these matters. Because the issue of abortion was never on David's mind. He's got lots to say about it. Originally, again, I thought of us zeroing in on the most potent verses in Psalm 139 pertaining to the issue of life. And we were just going to kind of survey the first few verses to gain the context of the chapter. Sometimes, though we like to bore down deep to understand, we're not going to go quite as, as deep. We're going more broad so that we can see the whole enchilada the whole of Psalm 139 in a cohesive whole instructing us of God and His view about not only Himself, but mortal man that He's created in His image and what our response is to be. Sometimes it's helpful to go a little bit faster that we might cover the, the whole chapter to have the full weight. So that's one caveat as we come to this passage a second 
As we look at our culture, among many things, our culture is one of murder. It's one of the suppression of God's objective truths, usurping His authority, which belongs to Him alone, trying to redefine biblical marriage, trying to redefine gender, trying to assault the womb in a legal fashion. The Supreme Court's war on the womb ever since Roe versus Wade back in 1973, just because culture and mankind legislates that something is legal, does not make it right, does not make it honorable to God. Majority has never made right. The bizarre hypocrisy that we observe in our culture, even in a local level a few years ago, in our own murderous culture where several people were gunned down in our local elementary school. And there were photos captured of the commander-in-chief, the president of our country, weeping over those who were killed in the Sandy Hook Elementary School, yet doing nothing for the over 100 over one million murders of babies that takes place in our country every year. That is blatant hypocrisy that we would dare grieve. It's right to grieve, but to grieve over a few in a horrendous, heinous crime and not grieve of the magnitude of legalized murder That is insanity. It's September 6th, last time I checked, and in just a few short days, 9-11, same issue, same deal. There should be as much or more moral outcry, not just of the motorcycles by the thousands that went by our premises last week commemorating the horrible atrocities perpetrated on 9-11. But since so many abortions take place out of sight, it's out of mind. You look at some of the organizations like Planned Parenthood. According to their latest annual report, that is 2013-2014, reports that their affiliates performed 327,166 abortions, legalized murder. That's more than 30% of the estimated over a million annually that goes on in the U.S. According to them, themselves, an unborn baby dies every 90 seconds inside one of their clinics. Not even a minute. Think about it. It's not very long, and there's a taking of a life which ought to grip us. Their revenues last year exceeded $1.3 billion, and 41% of their income came in the form of, here's the quote, uh, came in the form of government health services granted and reimbursements. It's a travesty that we would support murder. And the reason why I bring this to our attention, you wonder, Pastor Parker, we're Christians, we believe that we're created in the image of God. Many who engage at some level, even in 
even in the murder, profess to be believers. That ought not to be so. So, a, a second opening warning or clarification on our message this morning. When we come, come to Psalm 139 and zero in on the text, so yes, David, though he never was thinking abortion, he's got a lot to say about the, the issues of our, our day because that's the Word of God. That's how relevant it is. It's more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper. But again, we don't come here to Psalm 139. We know the omnis are here. Uh, but we don't come here for a systematic theology of God's attributes. And here's why. One, Scripture's got a lot more to say elsewhere about God's attributes. This is not uh, about a formula or some construct of how to think about God. This is a warning sounded by uh, one commentator, James Mays, who, who said, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence are often used as expository language for the three sections in verses 1 through 18, but it must be done with care lest this conceptualization becomes a knowing about God without a being known, accompanied, created, and sustained by God. Yet, this is one of the clearest passages to instruct on God's majesty. I, I trust you see the distinction we're making here. When time does afford us, we'll come back here, we'll revisit Psalm 139. We'd like to spend longer unpacking the riches of this psalm. But as I read it for us, would you not, notice the four uh, sections or strophes of six verses apiece with one unified and cohesive meaning, progressing from one subject to the next. They're interrelated, connected. God is the all-seeing, all-knowing one, verses 1 through 6. He's the all-present one, verses 7 through 12. He is the all-creative, powerful one, verses 13 to 18, which demands only one response, that of loyalty of His people, utter obedience or if you were to put it in a, a consistent parallel form of the previous three points, uh, this would be teaching the all-holiness of God. Notice that this is for the choir director, a Psalm of David, Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I'll give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me. In the everlasting way, we trust the Lord to add His blessing to the reading of His Word in both our understanding and obedience to it. Would you contemplate three astounding attributes of God with me so that you can run to it for comfort and are prompted towards obedience? Three astounding attributes. Though more time will be spent in verses 13 to 18, and and yes, we want a meditation in verses 23 and 24 as we go to the Lord's table together, but we need to preview the first half to get up to speed. Notice in verses 1 through 6 about God's omniscience. He is the all-seeing, all-knowing one. Right out of the chute, David acknowledges the Lord knew him penetratingly. He says, you know, in verse 2, when I sit down, when I rise up. This is emphatic, as it is in verse 13 as well. This is, when, when writers of Scripture write things emphatically and they put things right up front, it might not make good good English syntax to rearrange things where you're not supposed to. Uh, This is the writer's way of being forceful and being vehement with his proclamation. There There is energy with what he's got to tell us here. There's assertiveness as if he's raising the volume of his voice. When David considers God's craftsmanship in the womb, he says, this you know when I sit down and when I rise up. This is a, uh, a figure of speech called mirrorism. He'll use it again in the next verse, and he'll use it in verse 8. Uh, when you mention uh, parts of speech as the whole, time doesn't afford you to tell about every detail of the day, so the most convenient, abbreviated form of communication would be the beginning and the end. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, and the understanding is everywhere in between as well. That's a mirrorism. You know it. Even his motivations, God, you know my thoughts from afar off. God knows it exhaustively. We've got deceptive hearts. Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. So not only can I not see your heart and you can't see mine, man looks at the outward appearance, only God can see the heart. But the, the best that we seek to do in our sanctification is to gain a knowledge of our heart and to put off sin and to, and to root it out of our lives. But as we contemplate our lives, it's, good to, it's easy for us to make these justifications and to minimize sin because our heart is so deceptive. We've been talking about that on Friday nights in our study. They're desperately wicked. They are tainted with sin such that we have a hard time judging even the purest motives as pride and sin taints it. 
He goes on, verse 3, to say, God, in this exhaustive understanding, you scrutinize my path and my lying down at night. In other words, the whole day's activities, this is just another one of those mirrorisms. Uh, when, When he says you scrutinize, you could literally translate that winnow or sift. You sift my life. So God can discern between the wheat and the chaff of our lives. And so as, as believers, those of you that know Christ, as you think about, okay, at the Bema Seat of Christ, I'm going, to give a ju- you know, I'm going to be judged on what I've done for the Lord through the power of the Spirit. The wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burned up. And if we don't want to lose out on the eternal reward, we're going to the One who does scrutinize our paths to inform us not to instruct Him. Another of the many reasons to know His Word and to seek His face and and His will in prayer that He might instruct us of His all-seeing, penetrating, scrutinizing glance. Yet the grandest sampling that epitomizes God's exhaustive knowledge He gives in verse 4. He says, before a word is on my tongue, before I speak it, you know it. This answers those who are wondering, how exhaustive is God's knowledge of the future before you do it? Before you say it? Well, the answer is right here. Before the psalmist could ever... As, as the, even if the psalmist is not stuttering to find the right word right before he says it, God knows it. This is part of David's duh moment that we've all had. As he thinks about the penetrating knowledge of God, the exhaustive knowledge of God, this is, oh, every single jot and tittle. The beginning, the end, and all throughout the whole enchilada. God knows it all. And notice in verses 5 and 6 where he starts saying that you've You've enclosed me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can attain to it. David's initial response to the penetrating knowledge of God, it's so staggering that he's troubled. He's bewildered. Like some of us, the first times that, that you started to get the absolute sovereignty of God, and it's like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble here was your response. At first, it seemed confining. And as you're, you're scrambling of, well, maybe I don't have a will if God's sovereign over it all anyways, which Scripture does teach that you've got a will. But for the, God's, God's knowledge was out of His control. It was not a God that could be managed and manipulated. He said it's, it is you know, again, this word wonderful that he uses, that's translated uh, wonderful, that is too wonderful for me in verse 6. Uh, again, this is another, uh, it's an emphatic position. The sentence starts off this way. Wonderful. Right up in the front to make it a big deal. Now, again, we're not allowed to do this in the English language uh, because of the grammar Nazis and editors will say that's out of bounds in the English language. That's why it's great to get clued in that, oh, Psalmist is making a big deal here, and the main emphasis of this verse here is the wonderfulness of, I don't know anything. It's too grandiose. Ex- uh, 
depending on what English translations you've got with you. Uh, you know, some would translate it uh, exquisitely awesome or awesomely wonderful, just trying to cap- capture. So what the psalmist does, he, he bows in humble worship at the God that he can't figure out, which is a good reminder that after study, uh, contemplation, meditation, it's good to sit and simmer or meditate on that, that this is a God I can't figure out. I'm going to stop trying to unscrew the inscrutable. Uh, the old uh, Puritan Richard Sibbs said, How shall finite comprehend infinite? We shall apprehend Him, but not comprehend Him. We study Him, which we are supposed to, to enlarge our understanding as He reveals Himself on the pages of Scripture. But at the end of the day of study, He is a God that is past figuring out. And notice the logical flow here. David was probably, you know, as we said, first tempted to flee and escape. God knows everything. Uh Uh-oh, I'm in a world of trouble, a world of hurt here. And in a similar way, we mentioned culture at the beginning of the message this morning. Society likes to likes to flee away and escape, don't they? They 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 want to escape it in hypocrisy and and in an extreme degree, uh, they want to suppress suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. Romans one, exchange the truth of God for a lie and live in light of what's not reality. So under the inspiration of the Spirit. The psalmist continues to instruct us here. Because this tendency, this is as deep as the human heart is deceptive. Your natural gut reaction is flee away from it. A tendency as old as the fall when Adam and Eve tried the sin bit. And what they do? They tried to flee from His face, His presence. Run and hide. So the psalmist instructs us that that is not the proper response. So notice this second uh, section, this second strophe in verses uh, 7 through 12, God's omnipresence, the all-present one. So before you lace your running shoes, if you're so scared of the absolute knowledge of the Almighty, don't try running away from it. You better embrace it because there's no way to flee from it. You, can't, you can run, but you can't hide. Uh, he, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Rhetorical question, nowhere. Where can I flee? Nowhere. No place to escape His presence. You parents know exactly the right illustration here, don't you? You catch your kid right in the midst of breaking the rules. And what do they want to do? Uh-uh. I remember, uh, since this isn't a, bad, uh, a real heinous sin I can uh, talk about, I remember when my wife tells of the story, and I'd never use her for illustrations, but if it's in here. And uh, so, used to like to play with candles, like her husband does around bonfires with gas and catch himself on fire and all that other stuff. And uh, so, while she's playing with a candle, 
and mom says, I know you've been playing with it. You're ignoring. You're trying to flee the consequences. And as you're saying, no, I haven't been playing with a candle, your singed or bangs or eyebrows, whatever it was, defy and bring out to light your lie. Little lie. Psalmist says, there's no get out of, get, getting out of here from his presence. And then, but, but notice, as he's saying, I can't get away from you. I take the wings of the dawn. If I dwell in the remotest part, you, your spotlight's there. But notice verse 10. Even there, as I'm trying to get away, I find your spotlight, brilliance, presence there. Even there, your hand. Notice the terminology he's using here. Your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. So it's not this slavish fear of the one I've got to retreat from because he's going to beat me with his sovereign stick. David remembers that God's long arm is motivated by love. I love that picture that Derek Kidner gave in his commentary on this section. And so, as, as he's given us uh, this list in verses 8 through 10, presenting hypothetical examples, you've all got them, we've, we've all got examples of when we've tried the running act, possible escape hatches. And uh, when, when we realize that uh, God's there in the midst. Have you ever literally shaken over the heinousness of your sin and your knowledge that God is very aware and, and the next step you go in your thought process is, I used to think I was a Christian and I'm such a wicked, vile sinner. There's no way God could ever use me. Because you, you begin to grip that what you thought you were getting away with, God was there. Nobody saw it but God was there. Notice again the mirrorisms he used, these uh, comparisons. He says, if I go to heaven or the place of the dead, Sheol. If I take the wings of the dawn or go to the remotest parts of the sea, I take the sub down where only my crew knows where I'm at under the seaweeds, you're there. He says, darkness and light doesn't make a matter. Uh, if, if I can see you there or can't, whether there's darkness or light, to God it's all the same. David couldn't be concealed from God. Everything is a blazing light. Do you believe that? I don't think you do. And I don't think I, any of us are convinced to the point that we have utterly submitted to this truth of Scripture because if we believed that everything is, is light to Him, darkness and light, there wouldn't be such secret sins in our lives. This text ought to be one of the most sanctifying texts of all of Scripture in our lives to expose our love affair with our sin in secrecy. Thinking that in our secret corner, when no one's around, God's there. What this uh, contemplation should do for our sanctification is incredible. Uh, Much more than your accountability partner if you've got one. So, to pick up on this thought of darkness here, as, as each, each section he ties together, so he, he starts off saying this, this exhaustive knowledge of God. 
This ever-present God. And that even the thought of darkness cannot conceal me from the Lord leads right into this third section. One of the darkest places on all the face of the earth is the womb. He introduces in verses 13 through 18 God's omnipotence. The all-creatively powerful one. He not only sees the invisible and penetrates the inaccessible, but He's operative there. He's the author of every detail. The creator of life, which establishes the moral principle of the right to life. That it's not a matter of the mom's right or child's right. It's not even a conversation to have. To expand the psalmist's presentation now on God's powerful abilities, he ties in that beginning sentence. Notice how he starts off this, uh, this section here with that little word for in verse 13. For. So he's going on from the dark places, no escape hatches from the presence of God. Darkness and light are all the same. You know what's going on in the womb. And what he's going to show us here is that since God can create life without, with all of its intricacies, He certainly knows each person intimately and is with Him everywhere. So why flee or why fear? So as you're lacing up your running shoes, it is not to flee God's presence, but to flee to His presence, the only place for mercy, whether it be for salvation or assurance of salvation of the other issues of life that we deal with. Fleeing to His presence through our Advocate. His comfort comes from knowing God knows everything about Him and is everywhere He goes. Uh, God is immense and infinitely vast. So how can He be... Here's a theological word some of us have uh, studied before, and if you haven't, have you studied about the uh, God being imminent... If God is so immense and so big, so magnificent, so majestic, how can He be imminent and intricately involved in the details? Why does He care if I strike out on the team? Why does He number the hairs of my head? That's how detailed. It's exhaustive. He is above, but steps in. This dark place of the womb, which ought to be the safest place on the planet, though it's entered by murderers over a million times a year, God's there. God started it, and God will finish it. Notice how he uh, uh, starts developing his argument. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. You formed, you wove. Though, though these are figurative terms, he's not talking about the thread and needle and everything, but he's using figurative terms to convey a very literal meaning. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes we find uh, you know, the inner man is uh, referred to as, as the heart or the, or the liver. Here, uh, the psalmist says, you, what you formed were my kidneys. That's a little small part. It might cause a lot of pain if you get a kidney stone, but you, you form my kidneys. 
You were, you were putting it all together from the guts outward, not to be too gross. And he describes his sovereign superintendence over the natural process of reproduction. David attributes the mystery of his gestation in the womb not to the active role of egg and sperm or fertilization. Though God uses that, he trumps it all up to God's handiwork in the womb. We didn't know until modern science how this all took place. You couldn't even see this taking place through ultrasounds until recent modern history. But God doesn't just rely on husband and wife coming together on the marriage bed, though He doesn't overrule the natural law He put into place, except one time when His Son, when He robed Himself in human flesh, was conceived of the Spirit. So there is that natural byproduct of two coming together, and for fancy's sake, For convenience' sake, many of those two people decide whether it's the right time or not. And if it's not the right time, they undo what God did as they were participants in. Under the guise of sexual freedom and personal convenience, they'll abort. Those are some of the sinful responses that take place, whether it be cheapening life in pregnancy or cheapening of human life, trying to define what is quality of life. They'll, they'll, they'll define quality of life maybe as a non-Down syndrome person like my cousin. Or we've got to have all limbs present and if we wanted to get into all the emotional stories which I've been just as touched as you have as you've read them about a girl who they, they've determined is going to be born without a limb and their mom's wondering should we stop the pregnancy or not? And in God's kindness things were overridden and who was born without a limb goes on to flourish and those that early on had thought to undo that are mortified by their choices they almost made. They want to define quality of life. No defects because man's made in God's image. We reflect Him. End of story. There is no entrance in the conversation of quality of life. There is dignity. Since God creates it, life is precious. There's value in a human life. James picks up on that in his epistle and talks about how that this is why when we interact with each other, we interact honorably because to dishonor somebody is to dishonor God. David says here, look, you you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I'll give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. Fearfully and wonderful. Wonderful are your works. That ought to lead to, to worship. Praise to God. 
When, when, when we're constructing a theology in Scripture of what it teaches us about made in the image of God, it's not suggesting any inherent goodness in may, of man and to stroke people's self-esteem false, uh, false teaching, but that there is value. Because of the Creator, there is value in every life. Every birth that you and I observe. I remember the first birth I was present for. We had lost a couple of We lost a couple of kids that were ushered into heaven early. And then at the first birth, it was like a coma. It was probably the best way I've described it through the years. I couldn't hear what was going on. We, it was a teaching hospital, so all, these, all the uh, residents and everyone's observing. I couldn't hear what was going on. Because all of a sudden, this thing that came out of my wife moved. And yeah, you know what's going on as... They got the elbow pushing out and everything else, but it doesn't come to reality until you, you hold that little thing that you think is going to break in your hands. Every birth ought to instruct us in worship that God's done something here. God's given something. Recently, a friend that went to seminary with me um, had surgery. He had uh, posted a, a blog on uh, Cripplegate, for those of you that get it, uh, Soon Young. He had to have uh, aortic replacement surgery which instructed him in the glory of God and the intricacies of the human body. He's got a metal valve uh, keeping his uh, pumper going. During the average lifespan, we are told that the heart will beat two and a half billion times and pump up about a million barrels of blood. Every day that your heart moves, your, bl- your blood about 12,000 miles and things get way more complex, com- complicated when we talk about the valves in the aorta. And, there's, and I was learning a little more a, uh, anatomy this week, and I printed off my picture of the heart to be reminded, okay, it goes, enters here, exits there. Among the many things they do on valve replacement surgery, they, they bathe your heart in a potassium-enriched water at about 38 degrees. This puts the heart into a sort of hibernation. And after the bad portion of the aorta is removed and the synthetic sewn in, the heart is slowly warmed up, which then causes it to start beating again. All the while, the sternum sawed completely in half, the heart valve spared, attached to the synthetic aorta, the patient kept alive. The, the fact that the human body can survive that and the, the, the complexities that God has put into our bodies to heal itself if given the right stuff. We put too much garbage in, garbage in, garbage out. But that testifies to God's extraordinary wisdom. The psalmist is trying to gather words to uh, you know, this fearfully, wonderfully made Look at some of the specifics that he mentions there in the text. He, he says, I've, I'm woven together, back in verse 13. Literally, I've been embroidered for you sewing kind of people. Suggesting, maybe he's speaking about all, all the uh, feet of uh, veins and, and arteries. God is the master weaver. Construing hand-woven material. It's, it's like when you go to the store and uh, I forget what's the fancy bag some of these ladies uh, uh, fancy per, you know, uh, but the, the genuine 
You know, you want the thing that is, is you don't want bonded leather, you want nice calfskin real thing for your Bibles, right? And, and it's, it's almost like the psalmist is bringing to the surface, you know, God is the master weaver as he put it all together. He didn't use the generics to make it the lower bottom barrel price. So the master weaver, and when the psalmist proclaims this, uh, this man is at the height of God's creative genius. No other creation is in the image of God. And he says, you wove me together. And this is, when he says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that's no statement of an egotist. He's not looking just inwardly, but his inward look gets the outward look and upward look to God. He praises God for what God has done. He says, about his frame, though it's hidden from man's eyes, it's not hidden from God's. I guess there's 3D images you can get for ultrasound now. I mean, technology is finally catching up to what the psalmist already tells us. God observed. Though it's hidden for weeks. He, he says uh, about his unformed stu- substance in verse 6, your eyes have looked upon. The embryo. He sets a value on the unborn embryo. An unimaginable wealth of detail in every part is from the mind of God. You think about, uh, as, you, as you study what goes on in the womb, week by week. In the first week, DNA is completely unique from, from their mother and will never be repeated in the history of the world. God created that. He created you to be unique from everybody else. That doesn't give you inherent value. That makes him majestic as the master weaver. You've got your hair color, eye color, and sex already determined by God. Week one. Fast forward a couple of weeks to week three. The heart begins to beat about a hundred times a minute. You're only 21 days old and it's going pitter-patter. Even as tiny as it is. Week four, the brain begins developing and won't be finished until you're 25 years old. Talk about becoming a big head from the womb. Verse, uh, uh, week, week four, uh, excuse me, we just mentioned that. Week, uh, double it. Week eight, you're, you're done generating all the structures and the organs necessary for your body. He's woven it together. He's got all the structure there. All you do from that point on is get bigger. It's a matter of growing. Week 9, fingers and toes are developing. Week 12, just call me fuzzy. i got peach fuzz all over me in the womb. You don't see it. Fingerprints, week 16. Week 20. If you believe that life is sacred, as God instructs us on, that little one at week 20 feels pain just like her parents or his parents. 61% of abortions are before the baby, fetus, as some people call it, or person. That person is nine weeks old. Many who are involved in the abortion trade profess Christ. Now, we understand they're not all Christians, but many, uh, about 43% of that number is Protestant, 27% Catholic. 
We need to anchor our understanding in the bedrock of God's truth that having created every life, God presides over each. He is the Creator. Notice how He continues to inform us. He says in your book, So, so now, he, he likens God not to be uh, as much a weaver, uh, a skilled weaver, but a scribe. Verse, in the middle of verse 16, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me before I had any days. So God, as the scribe of life, registers everyone in His scroll Every day of their life foreordained. God pre-recorded all the days that, that per, each person would live in the flesh before that person would make their appearance from the womb. And I think that if we were to spend a little time diving deeper here, we would see this to refer not just to how long each person lives. God knows your beginning date and your end date. But every detail throughout it. Every detail. You know, as we consider verses 1 through 4 of the psalm, we'll fill that in here. God's not manipulated by man's murderous thoughts that are based on social convenience, that is not based on an acceptable level of health or functionality. He will take His vengeance and everyone will give an account. God will balance the books. Furthermore, dear brother and dear sister, those of you that, that name Christ, remember that His exhaustive wisdom that, that the psalmist has instructed us about, His exhaustive control, He knows your next job while you're waiting on it and praying for it and working the streets to find it. Going through the paper to see what options there are out there. God already knows when and where. When you're looking for housing, He's already picked it out for you. Whether it's got the picket fence or not. When you get the dreaded diagnosis or you hear overwhelming news, He's in the midst. That ought to pop the circuit breaker in your thinking that the infinite one is the imminent one involved in every detail. David's conclusion is this in verses 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I wake, I'm still with you. Your thoughts to me are precious. Again, he's not given us some man-centered view in which God created you just for his fellowship. God had perfect inter-Trinitarian fellowship without any need for us. Though he rejoices in those he calls brethren, those that He draws near. He didn't send His Son because He thought of you before all. Yes, He thinks of us. Yes, He created us to have intimate fellowship with Him. And yes, our redemption magnifies His name, but He's not needy on that. And yet in sheer grace comes near. His thoughts are nothing but good. His good pleasure so get that. He's not neutral. He comes near. He's intimately involved in His creation and His precious thoughts. The psalmist says, they're vast. I can't number them. I can't even come close. 
This reality is so incalculable, so far beyond even description, the closest illustration he could come is verse 18. If I should try to count them, I might as well go to the beach and start picking up every grain of sand. The only thing that comes close in his comprehension, the greater in number and substance than the sands of the shore, he's dumbfounded that God should be so mindful and so involved with us. Psalmist will say elsewhere, I'm, uh, you know, what am I that you take interest in me? You know, and here he says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Such God-centered view needs to ruminate in our hearts and minds, so much so that they're our first thoughts in the morning and when we go to bed. Notice with me the end of the text. His obedience Verses 19 through 24. On the, on the basis of his meditations, the psalmist turns to trouble that he was in to assert his loyalty in asking God to prove him by examination. I can only comment on the last couple of verses. We'll have to come back here at a future date to unpack from the beginning. But to prove his loyalty and showing he's not like the wicked. He says, search me. Oh God, here's His plea, here's His prayer. Search me. What should that remind us of? It ought to remind us how He started off the chapter. Lord, You have searched me. And since You've already searched me and have an exhaustive understanding of me, Lord, in humility, I'm asking You to search me and know me. So, he uses this writing device called inclusio. He starts this way and he ends this way to kind of give us a nice, uh, put our arms around the text to encapsulate the whole psalm. And you might wonder, why would one speak of Yahweh knowing everything about them? Jeremiah did. When Jeremiah found himself in difficulty, under attack, with conviction that God is faithful, listen to the words, if you wanted to jot down, Jeremiah 11.20. This is exactly what he did. He says, Behold, I'm bringing disaster on... Uh, I'm reading the wrong verse. Right chapter, wrong verse. Uh, Jeremiah eleven twenty, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For you have I committed my cause. To you I have committed my cause. One chapter later, Jeremiah 12, 3. But you know me, O Lord. You see me. And you examine my heart's attitude towards you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of carnage. So his substance comes out of his overflow of who God is. That he is the faithful one as Kathleen played for our offertory. Ever faithful. These words of David are spoken of himself. Not his enemies, not God's enemies. He wants nothing in common with them. When he says, God search me and know me, you've already searched me better than I've searched myself. You know me better than I know my own sin. Not just the blatant. You, You know the hidden anxieties. You know the lack of trust. You know the fear. Examine it. I don't want that in common with the world. I want that 
peace that passes all understanding to flow through my heart in the gospel. Spurgeon said, as I hate the wicked in their way, so I would hate every wicked way in myself. So the psalmist isn't spending all this time on the outwardly wicked, but even God conforming any remaining wickedness in his heart. There's no such thing as a little sin or an isolated sin. All that we do, we do so before the all-seeing, all-knowing God. This has got crucial value to what we're doing on Friday nights as we study the enemy within. These omni-words that are, are not David's but are modern theological terms do convey biblical truth to us. There is that danger of turning him into an object to be analyzed and theorized rather than a Lord to be worshipped and served. So, beloved, I'd invite you to be, be humbled by the text. Be stripped bare so that as you examine him and manifest a teachable spirit, he would examine you. This psalm is, is more than theological. It is doxological. It leads us to worship. We could never adore a God that we could figure out. Because that's not the infinite God of the Bible. All believers who come to understand the attributes of God, especially taught here, find a great source of comfort as well as great prompting towards obedience and holiness. So a question for contemplation as we conclude in prayer. How can a God so immense be so imminent? Such is the mind-boggling yet comforting reality about our infinite yet intimate God. Let us pray. Our God, we thank You for Your self-disclosure on Scripture, that You are the one with exhaustive knowledge, Your everywhere presence, Your absolute power, Your creative brilliance. Help us to respond to these truths in humble teachability, hating our sin, loving righteousness that comes through Christ alone. Help us to make a beeline for the cross every time we contemplate the holiness of God and the deceitfulness of our sin, that we'd be lost in wonder and praise at our advocate, the Lord Jesus, the one who made a way for sinful man to gain access to a holy God. We'll be cautious to give you all the praise, especially as we look at the Lord's table and consider these things about you. Amen.